Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Could be the beginning of a morality play wherein we all learn that all that glitters is not gold. Or it could be that we learn that Filmically Perfect always glitters. Welcome to another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm your host, so pleased to be joined in the studio today by our film guys on your radio right. The largest frame brain on the planet, the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress, and the awesome film guy, George Willeman. George... And I glitter, but I ain't gold either. <laughs> also on your radio left, the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for every single movie since Raising Arizona and many, many movies that we know and we love. He's a great drawer, and he can spin a tale as well. He is our film guy, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. Thank you very much. I wish I could afford gold. It's, <laughs> I think it's $1,500. Now. Is it? Something it like is. that. I'm not ready to have or... my teeth pulled and turn them in. <laughs> <laughs> I like those commercials on TV where they <laughs> tell everybody to rob grandma and get her gold and send it in. You grandma know? Had gold gold, yeah. Does grandma's smile glitter? Well, this is uh, based upon gold and the pursuit thereof. We gathered together today to celebrate a perfect film. And, uh, George, the film is... The film is The Treasure the treasure of Sierra Madre, 1948, written and directed by the one and only John Huston. John Huston. A beautiful, beautiful black and white picture about uh, the descent into insanity all for the love of gold. Of $20 an ounce in this movie. It's $20 an ounce. <laughs> so they're packing a lot of it by the time they've uh, gotten their fortune they together. They sacrifice a lot for this this metal that never, ever changes but retains its wealth and value. It sounds like a rule. Humphrey, it? Yeah. Bo- it does. Humphrey Bogart is the star of this uh, just riveting romp. Uh, also, uh, many, many uh, character actors that populate this great, uh, great... Tim Holt and, and Walter Houston, Walter the Houston. director's father, uh, in an Academy Award-winning turn as the old grizzled prospector. And everybody loves Bogart, yes. And Tim Holt is, you know, he's a little overlooked, but Walter Houston steals this movie. As the old prospector. He he's good. It. He it, Some of the stuff that you remember a lot is about him laughing at the end of the show. Ah, <laughs> He goes on, 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 on. And then he has the logic. He always has the logic. He knows it's very, we're very ephemeral people and we place too much value on this inanimate object known as gold. It almost has more value than they do. This movie is a great, uh, well, I, I don't know. It's, you feel like you yourself have been on a journey, a trek, mm-hmm. an odyssey by the time it's all said and done. And uh, it is perfect, but uh, it didn't just get there because uh, you casually thought it. There no, are rules, no, 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 no. regulations. Uh, the film guy rules are the treasure of Sierra Madre creates a perfect. It is a perfect movie because it creates the world that it exists in, and it wholly sustains that world, regardless of changes in society. It retains its meaning and entertainment value. And this perfect movie will never be placed in a preferential or numerical order. It is perfect by its own scale. No siree, Bob. Nobody puts numerical. You can't. There's no way. No, this nor alphabetical. Be, we don't even put them in alphabetical no. order. <laughs> just throw them up against the wall. I guess it would help enjoy. if we could spell. <laughs> it's a great movie. Um, I, I I love the opening scene where Humphrey Bogart is. Uh, he's he's a poor guy. He's down. He's his bumming luck. around in Mexico. He's tattered. He's torn. He's begging for money. Mm-hmm. 
This is a journey. This movie is a journey to wealth and aspiration and the, the obstacles that they run into because of of them finding this alter all their thoughts and what they think and, and everything that they they expected uh, to have it all gets changed because they, they change and they change right before our very eyes under the masterful direction of john houston if you could george give us it's a it's a long tale but give us just right. a, a I'll little give you a taste capsule, of the arc capsule, uh, synopsis here uh, basically the story concerns two americans in uh, mexico in 1925 uh, fred c dobbs and bob Curtin who are played by Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt, respectively. Uh, like we said, they're bumming around. They're down on their luck. I have a feeling a lot of these guys are like ex-World War I veterans who've made their way down to Mexico and are just trying to trying to find something, you know, and, and not finding anything. So at the beginning of the film, you know, Bogart is bumming money off. He actually ends up bumming, bumming money off of the director, John Houston, uh, playing a small cameo in his oh, own film. Oh, I didn't realize. Uh, he's always in there. He's, he's in a, a gentleman in a white suit. suit, and he gives him money a few times, and finally he kind of reads him a riot act and goes, you know, why do you keep bothering me for money? You didn't you stiff me the other day. Exactly. The other day. And he never looks him in the <laughs> eye, he explains, though. And right. that could be a clue right there, the, the character of, of Bogey's... Uh... But, uh, uh, but... Bogart uh, meets Tim Holt, and you know, and sort of their, they they begin to they begin a relationship, and they in turn meet uh, Walter Houston's character, the old prospector, who was talking about that there is this gold in this mountain if someone were just smart enough to go down and get it. And sure enough, they all kind of pull together whatever they have, and they make this expedition down to find the gold in this mountain. But Walter knows immediately before they even do this what is going to happen and what they're going to run into. But he's hooked just like everybody else. He has to give it one more try. He knows that people, that there's he potential that, for treachery here. He knows how it breaks, how it works on people, and he's willing to try it again. There you go. Right. So as, as they go down and they get deeper into it and they're encountering everyone from the police to bandits, in particular there's one bandit who they refer to as Gold Hat, um, <laughs> they finally get there, they start digging, and Dobbs, who seems like he's a pretty, you know, He's a pretty straight guy. He's like, he was a shoe salesman at some point, you know. I mean, he talks at one point about having been a shoe salesman. And, you know, he says, well, you know, I'd find this certain amount of money and then I'd be totally happy and I would go on my way. But as the film progresses, Dobbs begins to turn in on himself and he becomes very distrustful. And when they start finding gold, rather than keeping all the gold together so they can – you know, turn it in and divide it up, divide up the profits when they get back to civilization. He wants it all divided out into three parts and then they hide it. And, you know, and it's at already one point, beginning to smell a little bit. Bad. That's right. And in this little section, we've chosen to kind of show not only how great Bogart was at delivering dialogue, but also to show that Dobbs is really turning inside out where he is working with the pack mules and just He's talking to changing. himself. Not that dumb. Now you try to put anything over on me, it'll be a costly one for both of you. Any more lip out of you, I'll fall off and let you have it. And what's good for you, he won't monkey around with Fred C. Dobbs. How to get a load of Dobbs? He's down there talking to himself a mile a minute. Yeah, something eating him, all right. I don't know what. He just spoiled him for trouble. Somebody's spoiling for trouble. Well, that's why we watch movies, because we love to watch people <laughs> spoil for trouble. 
He's about to get it too. What's what Hitchcock said? You know, what is movies but life with all the doll parts cut out of it? Yeah. This one's certainly it. So uh, he slowly decays. He just descends. You can tell he's the one that said, divvy it up. Let's hide it. Let's not carry it all back together. He's not crazy. He's affected by gold. He's not, any time, if he wasn't under those circumstances, he'd be, he's a nice guy. It's like any other person who is affected by something. They become an overwhelmed by what it's going to do. That's right. Like, it's the greed. It's like that gold fever, that greed. It's a great character, Goldfinger. Yeah. It's a guy, man. He's the <laughs> gold. You know? We're talking about The Treasure of Sierra Madre, a uh, perfect film, 1948. Bogart's in this, and an amazing cast of characters, uh, filmically perfect to bring in you another beautiful, beautiful, in this case, black and white mm-hmm. classic. And, and I think, well, I don't really want to... I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but I think we have to talk a little bit about it because some of the important things that happened. So let's let's play our little, little spoiler <laughs> alert there. Let us all know that, uh, you know, by the end... Good, did you just turn on the vacuum cleaner? I did, and I'm sorry about that. Here, but... Sucking all oh, the no! Away. Ow! But basically, I mean, because of the, you know, the gold. Did you just say Budinsky or did you just say but? But, but basically, basically, <laughs> you know, but Budinsky has been reminding us that we we're too long on some of this stuff. So. That's right. The, um, <laughs> the 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 moral of the story basically being that you know, the gold has caused nothing but trouble, and when these bandits finally catch up with Dobbs after he sort of abandoned the other two. Um, and they kill him in a, in a, in a not, you know, a, you don't see him kill him on the screen. But, but they're very they, happy when they kill him. It's all very, very yeah, They're fun. very joyful. Very, yeah. They, they don't do it. But they want way. to steal the mules. They don't, you know, and they, they dump the, the gold. they dump the gold off, the bags of gold. They just dump them because they don't, they don't really realize They don't recognize what, they what it is. They, they thought it was it sand. Yeah. They thought it was sand. And so the gold just kind of blows away in the wind. And the two survivors end up just kind of laughing their way. Yeah, Water Houston laughs all about it. It's going right back where it started from. But meanwhile, you know, it's funny. I never have watched a movie and so strongly thought that I would like to see the sequel. In the end, they kill off the the third guy, Cody, or fourth guy even. um, And and, it turns out that he 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 had little children and he found letters from his wife. Mm -hmm. and, And they began to sort of like have some... Uh, sadness for that, and it, and it was decided more or less between the prospector and Curtin that Curtin would go back to this widow. And, right, go back to the widow, and and I would like to yeah. see that story. Well, maybe uh, if you go see Budinsky, he'll fix you up. There. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Does he have that story? Does he know that story? Uh, he's a big time producer, so. Um... <laughs> but this is a really powerful film coming out after World War II. So again, it's, it's you know it's a lot darker than films were before the war. Um, it's a lot more disparaging it's more and gritty. People, gritty. Mm. people are just downright ugly and mean to each other in this one. And you couldn't have picked anyone better than John Houston to helm this thing. Now, he- you know, it's been said and it's been told, and I'm not so sure it's true, but it's pretty hard to deny. When you watch the happy Mexican villain in this movie, <laughs> if you think back to your childhood, if you're as old as we are, there was some commercials called the Frito Bandito, and um, he had a marvelous likeness toward uh, this actor in this movie. Uh, yeah, Alfonso Bedoya plays the uh, the lead 
uh, bandit you... named Gold Hat. And yes, he does. The, the Frito Bandito does have a striking resemblance Even to Alfonso Even the little pencil Bedoya. erasers I remember kids had in school with the Frito yeah, Which never oh, worked. Sure yeah. looked like <laughs> this guy. <laughs> it's funny because I heard this quote, was hearing this quote long before I ever saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Shall we play it? And just in case you thought we weren't going to play this <laughs> clip. Because <laughs> we, we would not be able to get out of the studio with somebody <laughs> slapping us around. So here it is. <laughs> Oiga, señor. We are federales, you know, the mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Better not come any closer. No sea tonto, hombre. We didn't try to do you any harm. Why don't you try to be a little more polite? Give us your gun, and we'll leave you in peace. I need my gun myself. Oh, throw that old light on over here. We'll pick it up and go Norway. You go anyway without my gun and go quick. All right. All right. Vámonos para atrás. Atrás That's one of those magnificent Warner Brothers gunshots that we just... <sighs> Right. So good. I was startled. You'll probably hear that gunshot that. in many other Warner Brothers films, actually. <laughs> and he shoots him through the hat, does he not? Shoots him through yeah. the brim well, of his hat. Shucks, the hat's bigger than the aspect ratio of what we're looking at. <laughs> I mean, his face is way down in the bottom. <laughs> Even I could hit that hat, man. That thing is big. Where was this movie filmed? I really love this the film, sense of actually, space. Actually, I was just going to mention that this film is also very unusual in that it was shot in Mexico. Ooh, which was unheard of an in those actual times. On, yes. on location. Um, and I'm sure that Jack Warner was just having kittens by the cost of this movie as it grew and grew and grew. In fact, I think he finally called them back to the studio because it would just get too expensive to shoot out in Mexico. But Houston wanted it to look absolutely authentic. There's an amazing element of style in this movie. And if you watch John Houston's movies, you'll be able to identify a lot of these pieces. The obvious and the easiest one is, is the fight scenes on the way John Houston stages his fight scenes they're not staged by stunt guys they're staged by the way john houston wants a guy to take a punch one of the best scenes in that movie to establish how john houston do, does a fight scene is when they drag that guy into a bar and he keeps trying to buy them liquor and then they beat him up and they beat him up in in john houston style they punch him clear across the room and then they cut to the reverse and the guy's face comes in the lens and they just they just keep going and it, it never really has any kind of arc to it they just pound on this guy and then just to establish who these guys still are in this movie there's a sense of honor they only take what they're what owed. he what he owed them and, you know they grab all his money and they throw all of it in his face like we're better than gold. We're better than money. And right. and and then he gets you. You know, and then it gets better. The rest <laughs> of the movie just gets better because you're under the spell of one of the greatest directors that ever lived, John Houston. And he has got and, you. And you're just as addicted to that gold as, as those guys. I know. I did want a little piece of it by well, the end. And, and, and Houston's choice to cast his own father uh, as as Howard, the the old prospector, was just brilliant. Well, he'd been an actor before, must have been, because he uh, clearly Hust- had some yeah, chops. Yeah, Walter Houston, uh, vaunted stage actor going back probably into the 20s, uh, had been making uh, talking pictures at least since the early 30s, appeared in uh, one of his first major ones was American Madness for Frank Capra. 
Um, which is an incredible movie if you ever get a chance to see it. And uh, another one he did, one of my favorites, which I hope we get to do sometime, which is uh, it's called All That Money Can Buy or Devil and Daniel Webster. Or it's got several where he plays the devil. Mm-hmm. And he's really, really good in that one too. But to imagine you, you, you hire your own father to play in this movie and then you ask him to play it without his teeth in. <laughs> he had Walter Houston took his false teeth out. I think to he just play. kept forgetting to bring them to work. <laughs> Dad, did you bring your teeth today? What? Is- no, because so many, in so many of his films, when you see, you know, Walter Houston is a very, very well-spoken actor. He has wonderful voice, and he's very usually, you know, he's very proper looking. And this one, he's just scruffy. Actually, everybody in this movie is scruffy. Now, Houston, especially in this movie, um, one of the really really interesting things about this movie is the actor Humphrey Bogart. Not because he was a huge star, and he was, and he's still a draw. People just love to imitate him, look at him. He's just great. He's fantastic. But here's what is amazing about Humphrey Bogart in this period of time is that he he could do just about anything he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And most actors, when they have that power, they always want to look good. They always want to look like they're on top of it. They want to look like a star. They want to look like a star. Bogart was doing some down and dirty stuff. Which he was, was haggard. He had high water well, zone. He's this mm-hmm. guy who becomes despicably evil and rotten. He's transformed by gold, and he never rebounds. He, they kill him off, he, and he's doing K-Mutiny. He's a, just a dirty, down, rotten guy the way he treats. He's, he's gone out of control because of his, his ego. But Bogart has taken on these roles that most actors at the top of their game would not do. They only do that because they're at the end of their game. Like George Raft, who always played a villain, and then all of a sudden he became such a big shot, he didn't play villains anymore. Bogart came in there and took over his role, and he went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bogart went from being these rotten gangster roles to these you know, star-personified roles with Lauren Bacall. You know how to whistle, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And then he, at the top of his game, he started doing... Uh, these movies here uh, where he starts taking on a different kind of personality than we expect out of a movie star. Uh, the African Queen. Uh, For which he won an Academy Award. Think about that. He's this, here's the actor who's who's right at the top of his game and he's playing these parts. I, that's, I'm astounded by that. And you remind me of it's something. It's brave, isn't it? Yeah, you remind me of something I, I'm... I mean, I always had liked Humphrey Bogart. Always have liked him as an actor, just watching him perform and seeing his movies. But until I remember seeing him in, and I think it was To Have and Have Not, which is the big film with Lauren Bacall, and seeing it at the Ohio Theater in Columbus on a big screen, big, huge screen, that was when I realized why Humphrey Bogart had been such a big star. Because when he steps on that screen and he's 40 feet tall, Mm. you cannot take your eyes off of him. Every movement is just amazing. And just to watch the little nuances that he put. I mean, I don't know. I mean, he's loved, beloved as a as, a, as, an, as an icon. But I don't know how many people respect him as a really, really good actor who could really pull out a performance when, when he was given the material to do so. I, I have no idea who his agent was or what his relationship was with his agent. But it's my guess that Bogart was reaching for as much as he could get while he was still alive. Mm-hmm. And he was going after his, a part that he could take and turn into something completely different than what they expected of him. I think he was pushing the perimeters of his his scale and his ability. Well, and you see him right up to the end. I mean, there's so many actors when they get old, and of course his life was somewhat cut short by by cancer, but, but you look at the very last film he's in, which is The Harder They Fall, 
And it's a great movie, too. And he's great in it, even though he's, like, at the end of his life, you know, and, and he's looking really haggard. He's still, every moment counts for him, you know. And he just, it was it was his life. We're talking about The Treasure of Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart and uh, Walter Houston, Tim Holt, Bruce Bennett, and many, many more. Uh, the 1948 black and white classic uh, directed by John Houston on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. It is a perfect movie in absolutely uh, every sense of the word. I'm just drawn in from the beginning. And uh, I'm, I'm even more so now talking to you, I'm so, I, I feel so. Uh, it's, it was just so brave and bold uh, step on everyone's part, and I just... Um... Well, and also an interesting bit of useless trivia I'll throw out here. There's not just one father-son team in this movie. There are actually two. Uh, Tim Holt is the son of Jack Holt, who was a very popular cinema action hero in the 20s and 30s. And um, in the Flophouse scene, when they're you know they're going to bed and there's all the guys in the, in the Flophouse... Uh, I think I believe it's like right next to Tim Holt is his father, Jack Aww. Holt, playing an unbilled cameo. So you have both fathers and sons in two fathers and sons in the same movie. Plus the, uh, another interesting casting factoid: it's the little boy from the oh, lottery. Oh, that's right. There, at the beginning, this little uh, Mexican boy is selling lottery tickets or parts of lottery tickets, and it's Robert Blake. In between our gang and Red Rider and Beretta and whatever else he got into. Mm-hmm. So uh, all sorts of notable bits and cameos uh, in this great and, film. And otherwise production that helps, uh, again, a wonderful, florid, beautiful score by Max Steiner, who uh, who seems to have come up quite yeah, a lot in, in this our round last of a bunch perfect. of selections. You know, he's been in quite a few. We do love him. He's great. He, what a wonderful... All these movies that we talk about usually have one important element in them. That's usually music. the score. You know? That the score has yeah. done justice to the... You just can't have a movie without great music. You know, you can't have a great film without... I'm not saying that's a rule, but generally... I think, I think you, you will find... Feel, I think you will you know? find that the best films usually will have just amazing scores. No. Well, and it's they, part of... The, it's another character I've learned from my film right. guys. And also, I mean, it'll be the score will not will be outstanding, but it won't stand out. <laughs> you know, it'll work under the scene, it'll carry the scene, it'll add to it, but but it won't, not overact. Right, it won't be like you know, twenty five banjos playing all at once or something. What are some of the other movies that Max Stein has done? Oh, just King little Kong. little minor things. Yeah, King Kong and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> you know, twenty five banjos. Yeah, twenty five banjos on a raft. <laughs> <laughs> What? We're only kidding about that. Where that came Don't from. Don't go looking for that. <laughs> Casablanca, Top Hat, you know, <laughs> Night and Day. Had they worked together at John Houston uh, and uh, and Max Stein a lot? Um, I don't know, really. I don't think so. Pro- probably. I mean, they were both at Warner Brothers at the time, so I'm sure that they they had crossed paths anyway. You're still talking about a studio that has tremendous momentum from their last 30 years. And they, at this point, although... Things were looking bad for the studio manufacturing of movies. You weren't seeing it in this movie because it looked like Warner Brothers was in top form with their major stars, Bogart and uh, Max Steiner, and, and Walter Houston was a Warner's guy. Man. Yeah, and he this is a, this film. Or not Walter, John Houston was a Warner's guy. Right, he'd been in Warner's for a long time. Uh, in fact, he started there. That he's, his first directing, of course, was Multi Falcon in '41. And it's a Warner's picture. And so he was there at Warner's for quite some time. And he left. I mean, you get in the 50s, you'll see like African Queen is independently produced. And about the same time. Well, it's, it's, again, we're seeing 
this is the end of the studio era. This film yeah, comes this right at the tail end. But they're going out with such a blaze of glory with this mm-hmm. film. It's in black and white, and it looks like the studio era should look. And one of the things I always noticed with John Huston's movies is that he was a painter. And John Huston's stuff looks like it's layered in as a painter would layer it in. When you paint, and I don't get much money when I paint. I have to draw with pencils, and that's what they pay me to do. There's a thing that happens with painters when stuff gets muddy, and it's irreparable. You cannot correct it. You have to start all over again. Right. And very seldom does his movies ever get muddy, visually or, like George said, listen to Bogart do this dialogue. Uh, there's something about his ability to paint that, that gets into these movies. I don't know. Uh, painters seem to have a, an affinity of doing things that makes them look like painters. And I think John Huston looks like he's painting these movies. I swear. It I'm seems a natural uh, pairing of talents. Mm-hmm. To be, I mean, it seems like it, what is movie if not just a illustrated a painting? I hope it's going to be more than that. <laughs> no, but it's I've like heard you, someone refer to it as moving wallpaper, and that's visual, just a loathsome oh, description of it. No, but I mean it in the best way, that it's a painting that, you know, d- d- describing a scene, evoking well, a Well, his composition, his movement, it just looks like, um, because I've done a little bit of it, it looks like brushstrokes a lot of times. Um, his his fight scenes, everything just has this this sparkle to it. Yeah, and John Hughes is one of the directors where at his best, I mean, there, there there's hardly anyone that can touch him. Now, when he doesn't do a good job, ooh, he really doesn't do a good job. I mean, there are some of his. <laughs> films what movie that are could real... you be talking about, George? Oh, what let's would that see. Be? Uh, I don't want to name names, but it was the. I think it was the only musical he directed. <laughs> he directed a musical, is that yes. for sure? Yes, he directed a musical. Oh, come one on, of his say last, one of his last films. No, all right. Huh. But you can well, look it up if you that. want. It's I saw it in the theater, and I'm like, uh, what were you? Of course, he was on oxygen a lot of the time. So. Oh. Well, let's uh, think about the rules. I think that uh, we've uh, knocked it out of the park on this one. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not going to be disappointed um, when you see this picture, that's for sure. You know, there's another thing. Tim Holt was kind of overlooked as a – we don't talk much about him, but he had his own comic book. Uh, <laughs> what? There's a city in Oklahoma and gave him a, you know. Tim Holt Day. Tim Holt Day. And <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Tim Holt was like a personified cowboy. Yes, he was. A, um, but this movie is probably what people will remember him from. Well, it's I think good between because this he played one, a good guy. Well, it's between this one and the Magnificent Ambersons, which was the follow up to Citizen Kane that was done by Orson Welles that has Tim Holt in it. Hmm. And um, had it been left alone, that might have been the, the the other big film that he had been in. I mean, Holt did mainly, you know, a lot of B-Westerns. So this was kind of a walk, walk on the, on the high side for him to be in this this big major production. And, and he, he's really good. And he's really, really good at it. Here he's playing a loser. You know, mm-hmm. all these years he was the cowboy. You but know? he's a sweetheart. Yeah, he definitely doesn't get as affected as Dobbs does uh, by the gold. He still kind of keeps his head. And he manages to, to literally keep his head. And they go back to nothing except for... Uh, Walter Houston's character goes back to that village where they're going to give him massages and food. He <laughs> ends out well, um, but Curtin's going to go to the widow, and I'd like to, I'd to this day like to see that. They story. feed him grapes. That's and right. He sits there, and they're all just, you know, rubbing his hair, and he's, well, how could you turn down that retirement camp, man? Sweet right. scene when he saved a little boy, which is mm-hmm. why he, you know, saved a little boy who had drowned. He managed to revive him, and I think there's a lot of sweetness to this. See, movie. if they made that movie now, they'd have um, a park where you could go 
Walter Houston retirement village where you could get Get treated like a prospect. That's right. As far as rule number three, I just would like to say again that I uh, knew this quote before I ever saw the movie. So there's a great testament That's right. to that something. That will always be. We don't need those. And how many badges. times have you been at a party and you start just saying that, you know? And, and people <laughs> or just, if you go to a conference and they yeah. ask you where your badge is. I don't need no steam badges. Badges? Gentlemen, we are almost out of time. And as we always do, we asked uh, the uh, one and only Frame Brain to reach into the dark nooks and crannies and pull out a trivia question uh, that we offer up for your answer. And Mr. J. Todd Anderson offers something quite special indeed. A storyboard from the Big Lebowski. It's a copy and I'll sign it. If you are the correct first caller at 800 776 that's toll free across this land, 800 776 we will send you a signed copy of a storyboard from the Big Lebowski, gratis of uh, Mr. J. Todd Anderson. George, what is the question? Can you name the two father-son teams who appear in the film Treasure oh, of Sierra Madre? Oh, it's a tough one. The two father-son teams in this film. We talked about a lot of very interesting casting uh, decisions here and very notable fathers and sons. When you know that, give us a call. 800-776-0090. And uh, we just may hook you up. Thanks for listening. Uh, gentlemen, are we going to give any kind of a little something about uh, next time? Watch the promo. Watch the promo. <laughs> As always, a great pleasure to sit in the studio with the film guys. George Willeman, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Badges? Badges? You don't need no stinky badges. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.